I hope that I am a more loyal friend than I am a sports fan. I am a sports fan. I am a fan, but I tend to be devoted to my favorite team only when they're winning. Um, otherwise, I really don't have the time to follow them very much. So this fall, I am an Eagles fan. They are 8-1. They have the best record in the NFL. Hopefully that will stand tomorrow night when from California, Monday night, I watched the game from California. But I am a, I'm a fan, but I hope I'm a better friend than a fan because I'm just a fan when they're doing well. Um, with the, regard to the Eagles, they have a great season, but so many of their games have um, been cliffhangers. I don't know if you know that phrase. Sportscasters sometimes use that word. It's a cliffhanger. And that means that, you know, you don't know whether they're going to win or lose until near the end. And so you're, you're hanging on trying to figure out, are they going to win? Are they going to pull it out? And it's a cliffhanger. Well, I want you to take that thought back to our tour through the Bible. As I am preaching one sermon for each book of the Bible, and last week we looked at the book of Joshua. And the book of Joshua ended with something of a, of a cliffhanger, asking the question, how's it going to go with Israel? Joshua has been faithful in his long life. As Moses led the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea, Joshua was God's instrument to lead them into the Promised Land through the River Jordan. And at the end of his long and faithful life, he challenges the people in a final speech with these words in Joshua 24, 15. Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you might remember the people's response. They were profuse in their proclamation that we will serve the Lord. Listen to what they said in Joshua 24, 16 and following. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us up, brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went, and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. The Lord drove out from before us, all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. And then a few verses later, they actually reiterate that bold proclamation. There's a lot of confidence there, isn't there? There's a lot of bravado. But the question is, how will they fare? Two promises made to Abraham have already been fulfilled. Israel has become a great nation. They've multiplied and become a great nation when they entered into covenant with God on Mount Sinai, first promise. Now they're in the land, second promise. The only other promise that remains to be fulfilled, given to Abraham, was in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the question is, is that about to happen? Well, as we come to the book of Judges, that question is answered. Judges answered. Judges starts out on an optimistic note. Judges 1.1. Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, 
who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Now, that's a good thing. They inquired of the Lord. You know, as I read my Bible, one of the descriptions of a believer I'm discovering is one who seeks the Lord. Unbelievers don't seek the Lord. They may play at religion, but they don't seek the Lord. It's a mark of a believer to seek the Lord. And it's a good sign that the Israelites inquired of the Lord. That's a good start. Verse 2 says, the Lord said, <clears throat> Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Interesting to see the prominence of Judah, because we know who comes from Judah. That certainly bodes well for the long-term future. And then we read in 3 and 4, Then Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I in turn will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Judah went up. And the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 men at Bezek. That's a good start, isn't it? Remember, God had promised that if you obey me, I will be with you. I will give you victory over your enemies. But if you don't, I won't. So that's a good start. And we could read on, verses 8 to 10, talk about additional victories that were recorded by the power of God. And so the book of Judges begins with an optimistic note. But the optimism begins to fade as we read things like this. Chapter 1, verse 19. Now the Lord was with Judah, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. Chapter 1, verse 27. But Manasseh did not take possession of Bethshean and its villages of Teanach and its villages or or, or other places. Chapter 1, verse 30. Zebulun, another tribe, did not drive out the inhabitants of Ketron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labor. In chapter 1, 31 and 32, Asher, another tribe, did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or or, or other places. So it says, the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Chapter 1, verse 33, Naphtali, another tribe, did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but lived among the Canaanites. 134, just one more verse. You see the pattern. Then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. Remember, the Lord had commanded the Israelites to exterminate these people. They had filled up the cup of God's wrath, and the Israelites were to be God's instrument for bringing judgment upon them. The Israelites were to totally wipe out, totally destroy these nations. But they disobeyed the command. And theologian Thomas Schreiner says, if Israel lives among the Canaanites, it likely will not be long before Israel begins to live like the Canaanites. That was the whole purpose of exterminating them, so they would not be influenced by them. But they did not drive them all out. And then what follows in the book of Judges is a cyclical pattern that leads downward from bad to worse. And before we consider that, let me just say some things by way of general introduction to the book of Judges. The period when Israel was ruled by judges covers about 350 years of Israel's history. From the time of the death of Joshua, which is estimated to be about 1405 B.C., 
to the time of the first king, Saul, in 1050 BC. Remember, the numbers are getting shorter, lower, because we're moving toward the year zero. So about 350 years of Israel's history. During this time of the judges, Israel was a loose confederacy of city-states. They had no main leader, which will become significant, as we'll see. And during this period of the judges, the people began to fall back again and again into idolatry and departure from the Lord, which frankly forecasts their subsequent future for the rest of the Old Testament, as many of you know. It's a time, the time of the judges is, when God raised up men and one woman, Deborah, as judges. Now, these judges were not, as R.C. Sproul says, men in black robes who bang a gavel. Don't think of judge in that sense. But these judges were military, civil, and spiritual leaders who were sent by the Lord to deliver Israel when time and time again Israel got in trouble and was taken captive by or overcome by other, other nations. So the first main point we want to see from the book of Judges is what I'm calling the downward cycle of sin. The downward cycle of sin. The cycle can be illustrated if I just read eight or nine verses from chapter 2. It encapsulates this cycle. Chapter 2, beginning of verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth, which was a, an image of a female deity. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he, told the, he, he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandment of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So there are four stages in this cycle that was repeated again and again. The first was <clears throat> excuse me, provocation. They did evil in worshiping other gods. And this becomes a refrain. The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. We saw it in verse 11. The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel did evil, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's a refrain over and over again. This provoked the Lord to anger. Why? Because God is a jealous God. He's jealous to be the sole object of worship. And so the provocation of their idolatry led to their punishment. And as per the terms of the covenant, 
If you obey me, I will bless you, which includes victory over your enemies. But if you disobey me, I will give you into the hands of your enemies. And so another refrain is, the Lord, quote, gave them into the hands of. You see, instead of God giving their enemies into their hands, God gave them into the hands of their enemies. We saw that in verse 14. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. Chapter 3, verse 8, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia. Chapter 6, verse 1, the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian. Chapter 10, verse 7, he sold them into the hands of the Philistines. 13, 1, the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. So they provoke the Lord with their idolatry. That brings the punishment of the Lord upon them. The next stage in, or step in the, in the cycle is their prayer. Another refrain, chapter 3, 15, but when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 6, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Chapter 10, verse 10, then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. They provoke the Lord with their idolatry. He brings punishment upon them, brings them, gives them into the hands of their enemies. They cry out to the Lord in prayer, and then God provides a judge, a deliverer, Another refrain, chapter 2.16, we read it, then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them. 3.9, the Lord raised up a deliverer of the sons of Israel to deliver them. Othniel, 3.15, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. So judges is well known for this cycle. They provoke the Lord by their idolatry. God punishes them. They cry to the Lord in prayer, and God again and again raises up a deliverer for them. Now, we want to see next the determinative causes of that cycle. Why did Israel fall into this repeated cycle for hundreds of years of its history? Well, one reason, one factor, is the absence of a king in Israel. Here's another refrain. And by the way, we figure out the theme of a book of the Bible by by the repeated words, the repeated phrases. And so you hear me saying, here's another refrain, another thing that's repeated again and again. Here it is. Chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. In chapter 19, verse 1. Now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel. Israel's pattern is to forsake the Lord. The Lord is their savior, their deliverer, their lawgiver, their provider. And they trade him in, they exchange him for the gods of the Canaanites, which are no gods. The very thing that Moses warned them against, the very thing that Joshua warned them against, they were to exterminate the pagan nations to remove their influence, but instead they were gross idolaters. And one of the things we see in the book of Judges which is a foundational truth, is idolatry always leads to various forms of immoralities. This is vivid in Romans chapter 1, isn't it? Romans 1, speaking of the Gentile community that doesn't have the law of God, when they knew God, they know him through creation and the work of the law written on their heart, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. And what happens as you follow Romans 1? They degenerate down to forms of homosexuality, men with men, women with women. The idolatry spiritually leads to moral immorality. 
And that's what we see here. And what follows these statements that there was no king in Israel is two shocking stories at the end of the book of Judges that show us how low the people had sunk into both spiritual apostasy and moral degeneracy. And let me narrate or relate these stories to you. In chapters 17 and 18, and remember that right in the middle is 18.1 that says, in those days there was no king in Israel. There's a story that occupies chapters 17 and 18. The story is about a man, Micah. Sorry, Micah. Your parents didn't name you for this, Micah. They named you for the prophet, I'm sure. But there was this man, Micah. He was from the tribe of Ephraim. And he had stolen 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. But then he confesses, and he returns the pieces of silver to his mother. And you say, well, that's good. But then the mother takes those pieces of silver, dedicates them to the Lord for her son to make a graven image and a molten image, which is blatant idolatry, a violation of the second commandment. And then Micah, the son, proceeds, in addition to the graven image and the molten image, he goes on to make an ephod and household gods, and he puts them in a shrine in his house. And then a, a young man comes from Bethlehem, a Levite, from Bethlehem in Judah, and he's sort of an itinerant priest, like he's looking for a job. And Micah hires him to be his own personal priest. And he's thinking, ah, now things are going to go well with me. I've got my gods, I've got my shrine here, and now I've got my own personal priest. I mean, you see how far removed that is from, from the God-revealed religion given to them on Mount Sinai. And so there's Micah with his household idols and his personal priest. And then along comes some men from the tribe of Dan, and they're looking for land for their inheritance, and they happen to arrive at the house of Micah. For some reason, they recognize the Levite. And like thugs, they steal Micah's graven image, his ephod, his household idols, his, his molten image, and they convince the Levite to come with them, saying, look, it's better to be a priest for a whole tribe of people than for one man. And so they steal all his gods, his, his images, and they take his priest and they, they head off. Micah, incensed by that, pursues them, and in a sense, he, he, he catches up with them, and in a sense, he, he, he says, to paraphrase, he said, look, you stole my gods, you stole my priest, but they threatened to kill him and his family, so he realized this is hopeless, so, so he goes back home. The Danites, those people from the tribe of Dan, then come to a little town called Laish, and it is described in chapter 18, verse 7, as a people living in security, quiet and secure. But because, it says in verse 7, there was no ruler humiliating them for anything in the land. Literally, there was no possessor of restraint. Here's this idea. There's no king. There's no ruler in the land. Because of that, the Danites come to this little peaceful town, and it says in 1827, they struck them with the edge of the sword, and they burned the city with fire. And the next verse says, and there was no one to deliver them. And then the Danites rebuild the city. They name it after their ancestor, Dan. And they set up Micah's graven image there in that city that they have overtaken. So what do we have there? We have thuggery and we have more idolatry. Why? Because there's no restraint. 
There's no authority to protect this little peaceful town from the Danites just coming in and taking it over and burning it and making it their own. That's the first story in the wake of the fact that there's no king in the land. The second story is even more horrific. In chapter 19, again, headed by the words, when there was no king in Israel, there's a Levite who lives in the hill country of Ephraim, and he takes a concubine from Bethlehem of Judah. She runs away from him, runs back to her father in, in Bethlehem. He goes to retrieve her, and then on his way back to Ephraim, he refuses to spend the night in Jerusalem because Jerusalem is still under non-Israelite control. So he ends up in Gibeah, which is a, a city in the tribe of Benjamin, in Benjamin's territory. An old man there offers him hospitality. And what follows as this Levite with his concubine take refuge in this old man's house, what follows is a repeat of Lot in Sodom. Basically, we are told worthless fellows surround the, the house, pound on the door, and want to have relations with them. That is sodomy. The man, much like Lot, sadly, gives these people, these worthless men, his concubine, and 1925 says, sorry folks, but this is the Bible, they raped her and abused her all night until morning. So there you have rape and murder. She ends up on, on the porch of the Levite, clutching the threshold dead. He cuts her up into 12 pieces and sends them out throughout Israel, macabre. The horror is expressed in 1930 of Judges. All who saw it said nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. The other tribes gather together. They marshal their troops, 400,000, and they're going to come against Dan because this happened in a city of Dan, Gibeah, and they're incensed with Dan. Now, the tribe of Dan, rather than owning it, and saying, we are so sorry, this is shameful, it happened within our boundaries. Instead of doing that, they maintain their tribal loyalty, and Benjamin decides to fight against all the other tribes of Israel. And in that fight, 40,000 Israelite soldiers die before they kill 25,100 of the 26,000 troops of Benjamin. So what do you have on top of all the other sins? You have civil war and genocide. Benjamin is almost wiped out, but they figure out a way for the tribe to survive. And the book of Judges ends with these words in Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What did we see? There's anarchy. There's chaos. There's thuggery. There's theft. There's rape. There's murder. There's civil war. There's genocide. And there's a connection between the behavior of the people and the fact that there was no king in Israel. Do you see that? There was no king in Israel. That somehow is connected to the fact that everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Well, brothers and sisters, let's pause and, and make application of that. That tells us something about the human condition. Since the fall of man in the garden, man has una been unable to control himself. He can't govern himself, and so he needs government from outside himself. And it's believed that human government was established by common grace in the days of Noah. After the flood, 
We read in Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds man's blood by blood, his, his blood by, by man, his blood shall be shed. And that's taken to be the beginning of human government. And we know from the New Testament that God has ordained civil human government. Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. Government has a real, necessary, but restricted role. What is the role of government? It is to preserve and protect life. Now, by punishing those who do wrong, and according to Romans 13, by praising those who do right, and creating an atmosphere of peace in the world. Government, human government, is, is an avenue and means of common grace given from the Noahic Covenant to try to bring about peace in the land. The role of government is not to propagate the gospel. That's the job of the church. And as I looked at it, we've got six Ps here. The role of government is to protect and preserve human life by punishing evil and praising those who do right in order to maintain peace in the land so that the church can propagate the gospel. And that fits with 1 Timothy 2, right? We're to pray for kings and those in authority that there might be peace and tranquility. Why? So that the gospel can go out which is the church's commission. And so we need human government. And part of the explanation for why there was this conduct in Israel was there was no king in the land. But that's not the root cause. The other determining factor is the absence of faith in the hearts of the Israelites. Yes, there's the absence of the restraint provided by human government. That is contributive to the problem, but it is not determinative. What ultimately accounts for the horrors that took place in Israel during the time of the judges is sin in the human heart. Listen to Judges 2, verse 7. We are told the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua who had seen the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. But in verse 10 of chapter 2, we read this, that after, quote, there arose, and after that, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Ah, there's the real problem. There is the root problem. Not the fact that they didn't have a king in Israel, the root problem was they did not know the Lord. They were idolaters at heart. And here, brothers and sisters, the condition of the Israelites during the days of the judges is simply typical of the condition that has plagued the human heart since the fall of man. Listen to what you well know, the Bible's diagnosis of the human heart. Way back in the time of Noah, Genesis 6, 5, Every thought of the intent of his heart was only evil continuously. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick or wicked. Our Lord Jesus tells us in Mark 7.21, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit. Sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And he goes on to say, 
In that passage, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. How many of you have read in your early school days the book The Lord of the Flies, a 1954 novel by William Golding? You might remember the story. It's about a, a plane load of British schoolboys who are stranded on an uninhabited island. And as the plot unfolds, those well-cultured, seemingly harmless schoolboys turn into brutal savages on that island. And one commentator says about that, quote, the moral is that the shape of a society must depend on the ethical nature of the individual and not on any political system, however apparently logical or respectable. They became what they really were at heart, little savages, with a veneer of culture, a veneer of education, a veneer of civility. And it's a great exposure of what is in every one of our hearts by nature. And I don't need to tell you or prove to you that this is still the human condition. Anyone who's half awake needs only look at the world's current condition. And what do we find? Let me just reiterate what is obvious or should be obvious, the brutal savagery of the Hamas barbarians. And when, when a news commentator used that word, I thought, that's the word. It was the barbarians that overrun ran the Roman Empire. They're barbarians. And when you consider what they did brutally to innocent Israeli citizens, including infants, children, and elderly people. But do we need to look to Hamas and the militant Islamists? No. Look at our college campuses. Ivy League college campuses. Look to our own Congress, and you see anti-Semitic barbarians who are lobbying in support of the Islamic butchers. We have, as we've said many times, the murder of millions of babies in the womb, and not only endorsed, but boldly, brazenly propagated by an entire major party of our political system. The brutal persecution of Christians around the world by Muslims and by Hindus, by communists, and sometimes by nominal Christians. The now commonplace murder of children in schools, murder of, mass murder of people in movie theaters, shopping air, air, air arenas and concerts and churches. You know, back when Columbine happened in 2000, we were shocked. Now it's almost like, oh yeah, another one of those another mass killing in a school or in a, a public place. They are commonplace. Some of us grew up with Hitler as this figure that would never be repeated in human history again. And yet you look on the scene and there are current Hitlers in Putin in Russia and Xi Jinping in China and the guy in North Korea and Venezuela. There's the sexual revolution militating for all kinds of sexual immorality, children being mutilated in the, in the name of sex change, drag queen story hour in libraries, the despising, as I prayed, of parental authority in favor of the state taking over for parents contrary to the revealed will of God. Friends, Despite all of our scientific, medical, technological advances, our artificial intelligence, we are still a race of fallen, depraved, lost rebels against God and his government. And as much as Israel needed a king, we need a king 
as well. Not a human king. Not a governmental king to rule our society. We need a divine king who will rule in human hearts. And there's only one who is suited to that, and that is King Jesus. You know, as you read your Bible and as you look at the world around you, it ought to confirm that this book has nailed it. What other religion paints the accurate picture of human society that we see in the world? The Bible does, right? All you need is three chapters of the Bible to explain man's amazing greatness and giftedness and his brutality. One and two, made in the image of God. That's why we're so great. Chapter three, that's why we are so brutally depraved. There it is, three chapters, and you've got the world. That's why the Bible's true. No other religion paints that accurate picture. We used to say you can hold the newspaper in one hand and your Bible in another. Now we don't have newspapers, but you hold your electronic form of information in one hand and, 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 and the Bible in another, and they comport, they fit, they make sense, because the Bible's true. The final point is we want to look at the dominant characters that restrained the cycle. We saw the downward cycle of sin in the book of Judges. The determinative causes, yeah, it was a problem that there was no king, but the real problem is there was no king in the hearts of the people. And now the dominant characters that restrained the cycle. There were 14 judges, 13 men and one woman who served as judges during this period. Not all at the same time, but successively one after another. As Israel got into trouble, God raised up a judge. They got into trouble again, he raised up another judge. Fourteen in all, thirteen men, one woman. What do we note about these judges? They were sovereignly raised up by God. Here's another refrain, chapter 3, verse 9. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Chapter 3, 15, but when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. That must be significant. They were raised up by the sovereign will and power of God. Another thing about the judges, they were saviors of sorts, little s. They were given power by the Spirit of God to deliver Israel. Another refrain, chapter 3, verse 10, Othniel, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Chapter 6, 34, so the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Eleven twenty nine. now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah and several times of Samson, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and as a result of that, he tore apart a young lion, and he killed 30 Philistines. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he broke ropes like they were burned flax. And then they were surprising saviors. They were sovereignly raised up by God. They were saviors in the little s sense, but they were surprising saviors. The theologian Tom Schreiner says, what can we say about these saviors? The narrator often calls attention to how unusual they were, indicating that they were unexpected saviors. Unexpected saviors. And let's just look at a few. Deborah, the only woman who is a judge. She was a prophetess. And she judged Israel and led Israel against Jabin, the king of Canaan, and his general, Sisera. She recruits Barak as a general, and Barak lacks the courage to go to battle alone. He won't go unless Deborah goes with him. And God gives victory through Deborah and Barak, but also through another woman, Jael. Sisera 
the enemy general is running from from uh, um, Barak's forces, and he ends up at the home of Jael, and he's tired. And so she takes him in to her tent, and she gives him milk to drink, not water. So he falls asleep, and she drives a tent peg through his head, and she's celebrated for that. God used the woman to defeat this king. Now, R.C. Sproul comments that Deborah shamed her male counterparts by serving with such authority that they begged her to lead their troops into battle. And then we have Gideon. We know Gideon. He was a good man, but he was a faltering man who was actually weak in faith. You think of Gideon who put out the fleece. That's not, not something you should follow. That was really a mark of his lack of faith. He asked for sign after sign from God. He was a man weak in faith. He was told to tear down the altar of Baal, but because he was afraid to do it by day, like Nicodemus, he went by night. When the angel Lord came to commission him, he said, look, I, my family is the least in the tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my family. There's a sense of felt inadequacy and weakness. And yet through Gideon, God whittled his army down from 22,000 men to 300 men, and they routed what is called an innumerable host of enemy. How'd they do it? Blowing trumpets and smashing pitchers containing torches. And the enemy fled, and then other troops from other tribes came and participated in a great slaughter. The battle is clearly the Lord's. Gideon was a weak, fallible man. His fallibility is further seen in that he makes an ephod, which ends up becoming an object of worship and a snare to the people. So we have Gideon. Jephthah is a man shows up in chapter 11. He's another judge. He's the son of a prostitute, and as a result of that, he's kind of ostracized and an outcast in his own family. But he's a valiant warrior, and he's recruited by Israel to deliver them from their enemies, the Amorites or the Ammonites. He surrounds himself with worthless fellows. And the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and he makes a great slaughter of the enemy. But then in Jephthah's case, he makes this foolish, careless vow. He says, after this victory, whoever comes out of my house first, I will sacrifice to the Lord. And out comes his daughter. And commentators are disagreed as to whether he actually sacrificed her in human sacrifice or perhaps sacrificed her to a life of virginity. Um, commentators are disagreed on that. But again, an unwise vow. And then we have Samson, probably the best known of all of the um, judges, the most colorful character by far. He's born to a woman who is unable to have children, but she's visited by an angel, and the angel says, you need to devote this son to the Lord. He's going to be a Nazarite. He must abstain from alcohol and anything unclean and not cut his hair. Samson, as you know, was given supernatural strength from the Lord, and he was used of God to deliver Israel from the Philistines. But his life is marred by selfishness and carnality. One writer says, Samson falls for foreign women like Israel falls for foreign gods. One of the women he fell prey to was Delilah, right? Her name is famous because of that. And she's a Philistine, and she's in cahoots with the Philistines to try to find out the source of his power so that they can nullify it. And she finally gets him to admit that his strength is in his long hair. 
And so the Philistines come in, they cut off his seven locks, and his strength flees him. The Philistines gouge out his eyes, put him to forced labor, make him a grinder in the prison. That's not the end. His hair begins to grow back, his power comes back, and he ends up putting his hands on the weight-bearing pillars. 3,000 people on the roof come down, and he kills more in his death than in his life. So as we evaluate the judges in Israel, it's important to get, how should we think about them? It's important to get the New Testament perspective. I am one, brothers and sisters, who believes that because of the progression of revelation, we're going to understand things in the Old Testament by looking at what the New Testament says about it. And I commend that hermeneutic to you. The New Testament is going to shed a lot of light on Old Testament passages. And in this case, the New Testament scriptures do speak about these judges. In chapter 11, that hall of faith. And we read in Hebrews 11:30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish. But then verse 32, what more shall I say? For time will fail me. Time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. So from a New Testament perspective, these flawed judges were, were heroic men and women. They were good examples of faith. They had courage. They, were, they did military exploits. And they are examples of faith to be imitated. But their flaws and their failures are also significant in light of the big picture. You see, the solution for Israel was not Moses. The solution for Israel was not Joshua. And the solution for Israel is not the judges. Judges seem to present the fact that, ah, oh, what Israel needs is a king. Everybody's doing what's right in his own eyes because there's no king. We need a king. And they did need a king. And soon after, they got a king. And in David, they got a good king, a man after God's own heart. But as we'll see as we continue to study, David was not the king who was ultimately needed. If God is going to fulfill his promise to Abraham that in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed, we need a greater king than David. We need the greater son of David, Jesus Christ. He is the king we need, not a political ruler, but one who will be powerful enough to rule over human hearts and transform them from doing what they think is right in their own eyes to doing the will of God from the heart. It all points to Jesus. Let me make some final applications and we'll come to the supper. What do we learn from the book of Judges? The depravity of man. Human sin shouts at us from the pages of Judges, doesn't it? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And brothers and sisters, when you think about it, that is the distilled essence of human sin. You've heard me say before that when it comes to worship, there are really only two choices. You either worship yourself or the God who made you for himself. Why do we say that? Because when people make up gods and invent gods, they always do so to serve them. I'm going to fashion a God that will serve my needs. 
So what it revolves down to is you either worship yourself or you worship God. That's the essence of human sin. And that's why James could say, what causes wars? What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not your pleasures that w wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. From the international wars to the petty squabbles among people, the source is the same. Selfish desire, selfish lust for power, for pleasure, for praise, for position, for comfort, for ease. All the murders, all the rapes, all the wars, all the sexual exploitations, the bullying, the greed, the envy, the jealousy, the fraud, the lying, the deceit, the slander, all traceable to people doing what is right in their own eyes. And there's only one solution, the gospel, by which, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. <clears throat> the depravity of man shouts to us from the pages of Judges. The solution shouts to us from the entire Bible. It is Jesus Christ and the salvation that is in him. We also see the sovereignty of God in the book of Judges, sovereign over his people. He raises up deliverers, gives the enemies into their hands. He's sovereign over unbelievers. We won't read the text, but time and again it says he gave up um, Israel into their hands. He actually strengthened some of their enemies to conquer them. He is sovereign not only over his people, he's sovereign even over his enemies. He's even sovereign over evil spirits. There's one verse in, in uh, Judges 9.22 where there talks about a conflict between Abimelech and others, and, and it says this. Listen to this, 9.22. Now, Abimelech, 9.23, then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. God is even sovereign over evil spirits. As Luther said, the devil is God's devil. And so God is sovereign be comforted, Christian. Your God reigns. A third thing from the book of Judges is God's holiness, God's righteousness. He can't, he's a jealous God. When his people turn to idols, he comes and he punishes them. Why? Because he is a righteous and holy God. He not only is Lord, but he will win in the end. All sin will be ultimately punished. And for you as a sinner, either your sin will be punished in yourself or in a substitute. So you need to come to Jesus and let your sin be punished in him. The mercy of God is also evident. Amazingly, um, he delivers them time and again. How patient is God? Chapter 218 says, The Lord was with the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. 1016, And he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. It leads Thomas Schreiner to say, to refer to God's judgment as his strange work. Isaiah 28:21 refers to God's judgment as his strange work or unusual task. You know what that points us to? Points us to the fact that our God prefers to be gracious and merciful. He judges injustice, but it's his strange work. He prefers to be merciful and gracious. And then finally, there's a lesson in sanctification here. Even as the Israelites failed to drive out the pagans, the Canaanites, what happened? They ended up becoming like them. And that's the danger with sin in our hearts. 
If we don't put sin to death in us, sin will grow and increase in our lives. And perhaps you've heard that little ditty that says, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Let me say it again. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And when I looked that up, when I Googled that, you know the one to whom it was attributed? Ravi Zacharias. Now, whether he's the originator, I don't know. But how ironic. He's the one who said that. But it's true. If you don't kill sin, if I don't kill sin, it will kill us. Its aim is to kill you. So you need to put it to death. Show no pity. Don't spare it. And I ask you as we close, is there a sin, brother or sister, that you are tolerating, that you are petting, that you are coddling in your life? It will do just as it says. It will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. So please, by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit within you, put that sin to death because it aims to kill you. Well, let's pray. And then we'll turn to that glorious song, His Robes for Mine, 167. Lord, thank you for the truths that emerge from the book of Judges, which fit with the rest of your word and just comport with human life and society as we see it. Thank you that your word just exudes truthfulness and validity. It fits with what we see around us. Help us to apply its truths to us. In Jesus' name.